Learn the multi-jurisdictional issues and challenges facing our international businesses with insights and interviews in a global perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford, coming up right now. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Adriana Sanford. I am here at the 52nd Annual General Meeting for Amnesty International USA in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I have Tawanda Mudasa, who is our Senior Director of Law and Policy Worldwide, and I'd like him to speak to us a little bit today about some of the issues from Amnesty's perspective, in particular, the economic, social, and cultural rights. Uh, thank you, Adriana, and I'm pleased to be here. Economic, social, and cultural rights is a subject that's obviously important for your audience. Uh, your audience is involved in manufacturing, is involved in management, is involved in production of goods and services, the number of levels, and we look at it as amnesty from the perspective of human rights. Essentially, we say everybody, every human being, has a human right to economic, social, and cultural policies and goods and services and provisions and protection uh, that enable the living of life, not only living, but also living life in a meaningful way. So it's access to water and sanitation, uh, it's access to uh, the basics uh, such as work, it's um, access to clean air, uh, it's access to anything that we may take for granted, which is about actually being able to reproduce ourselves as human beings. The general area of law internationally uh, here is covered by the covenant that governs the area of economic, social, and cultural rights, which came into force in January 1976, uh, which essentially rights for four types of protection. Uh, the first type of protection that it provides is specific economic, social, and cultural rights, such as uh, the examples that I gave earlier, the right to water and sanitation, and so on. The second type of protection that it provides is that uh, none will be discriminated against in accessing any of these uh, rights. So there is a general protection on non-discrimination. Uh, I cannot say that I'm going to make sure that uh, clean water is only accessible to uh, particular communities and not others, or particular individuals and not others. The third form of protection is in Article 9, of the covenant, which is essentially uh, about social security, uh, which is that everybody is entitled to some form of social protection and social security. We take this for granted in some countries, but it doesn't exist in all the countries of the world. A number of companies uh, do take care of this, but it is also an important responsibility of the state. And from a, the standpoint of amnesty, obviously, uh, we not only talk about state obligations in terms of what states have contracted themselves to under international law, but we also talk about the responsibilities of corporates uh, and of various other actors. And then the fourth and, and last is that for particular types of rights, uh, there is a increasingly under international law a recognition that those rights cannot wait for when we have the resources and that we are doing the best that we can to provide under existing resources the goods and services that are needed. So the right to education in particular has ended this domain. There are a number of uh, steps that have been taken by courts, for instance, the Constitutional Court in South Africa, which has ruled that when it comes to education, you cannot rely on progressive realization of uh, economic, social, and cultural rights. Uh, you have to provide education immediately uh, because uh, it is so central 
to the lives of children and uh, their future. So while you may have, for instance, protection of the right to education, uh, such as has happened in one case that we litigated in the Czech Republic, uh, where some Roma kids uh, were in Ostrava were being prevented from accessing quality education, and that was on the basis of non-discrimination. You can also have what I've just indicated now, which is an expectation that every state has an immediate obligation to provide education to all its children. Could you elaborate a little bit on the issue of mass surveillance and how that affects our right for Europe, for Latin America? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important issue, Adriana. So uh, under the uh, big two covenants uh, that uh, elaborate our human rights, uh, that sort of followed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, so the one that I cited uh, on economic, social, and cultural rights, but this, the other one, which is the one on civil and political rights, uh, there are various protections uh, to the security of communications, to privacy, uh, to expression, for instance, Article 19, and so on and so forth. And what this is all about, really, is a recognition that as human beings, we have a right uh, to communicate with our families uh, away from the prying eyes of the state, uh, to communicate with our friends, to express our joy, our love, our fears, our hopes, our concerns, uh, without let or hindrance and without Big Brother spying over us uh, in the manner in which George Orwell uh, caricatured in 1984. Uh, the reality that we are seeing now is that the level of spying, the level of surveillance, the level of um, encroachment into rights of privacy, uh, not only for individuals but also for companies, uh, has increased. And in turn, there are also some companies that have been used by states in extending the surveillance that uh, we are concerned about. So some companies have been on the receiving end of surveillance uh, and privacy invasion problems. Others have actually been a part of the problem. In all cases, our advocacy as Amnesty International uh, is that it is important, as has been elaborated in various uh, United Nations general comments, and protection processes. For instance, the introduction in the last two years of a special mandate uh, in the United Nations for a special rapporteur on privacy in the digital age, it is important to recognize that this right is critical. It is critical for development, for growth. Uh, there can't be enough innovation if we are looking over our shoulders, even as companies, about we stealing the innovations that we are thinking about. There can't be uh, enough creativity on the part of individuals if we don't know who is listening in on every, anything we are doing. And at a very basic level of life and the way life is lived, I can't be free, I can't be happy, I can't be fulfilled if I'm communicating with my wife, with my family, and somebody is prying their eyes into it. So essentially, we have a number of safeguards that, we, that are provided under international law uh, that we urge governments to respect as part of their state obligations under uh, relevant international uh, rules and obligations and standards. This is a big problem because companies right now are in a predicament trying to figure out which law to violate because when you've got conflicting and impeding laws and sometimes criminal liability at stake, it really, really does hinder innovation. It hinders our ability to, to act. It's, it's, it's awfully important, actually, that, uh, like I said earlier, that companies must locate themselves on the wrong side of human rights protection in anything. There are some corporates that want to do the right things that are also uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. And that's sort of the advocacy that we all must do about the respect for fundamental human rights that include the critical rights uh, of privacy in the digital age. I mean, it is often said today that when you go into a home, um, 
in terms of cultures that show hospitality in various ways, it's no longer enough to just say, welcome, I'll give you a glass of water. Uh, often people say, welcome, I'll also give you the Wi-Fi access, the Wi-Fi password. So this has become as important as uh, things that we would have taken uh, for granted. So the question of effective capabilities to communicate freely and without let or hindrance and without undue interference is as important uh, as anything else in our world today. So yes, uh, in short, I would think uh, companies have that responsibility as much as state have the obligations under international law uh, to, to protect privacy uh, and um, roll back on um, a kind of surveillance that uh, we have been seeing. Wonderful. Thank you, Tawanda, for joining us. You've been listening to Tawanda Mutasa, our Senior Director for Law and Policy for Amnesty International Worldwide. Thank you, Adriana. I'd like to now introduce you to Edward Naraski, who is our Executive Director for Amnesty International in the Netherlands. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about basic fundamental right to privacy. Right now, the Netherlands has a new legislation on surveillance. I'd like Edward to speak to us about that, as well as some of the other hot topics regarding human rights. Edward? Yeah, thank you, Adriana. Well, first of all, on, on surveillance, I think it's very important to acknowledge and, and to fully respect the uh, obligation of uh, governments to protect citizens, and also, and especially in times of possible terrorism attacks. So that is very important. And also very important for us is that if you want to protect citizens and also your way of life and your values, as is very often stated, that governments have to do that within the framework of international law and within the framework of the rule of law as it exists in the country. What we see now in the Netherlands is that we have a new legislation on mass surveillance, which gives a very broad mandate to security services in order to, to just almost do what they want in order to, to intercept data and communication, which, uh, as, as Tawanda just explained, well, really is in, in contrast to the, uh, the right on privacy for citizens. So what we have been trying to do, but not successfully, I'm afraid, is to convince uh, governments, uh, the government and members of parliament to, to see to it and to ensure that there's more checks and balances in this kind of legislation and there's more oversight for secret services and not this broad mandate. They can almost, well, intercept whatever they want. And this is what we didn't make because the, the atmosphere is very much that we have a huge problem at hand with terrorism and that the old ways of acting and the old... Uh, existing frameworks and values have to be adapted in new times and new threats, and that th those threats are very uh, so huge that the rule of law, maybe as we know it, isn't that dominant anymore. A second uh, thing that is for us very um, alarming is that there are possibilities for exchange between security services. And if I look at Amnesty, and if we have information on human rights defenders in, for instance, Russia or Turkey or Saudi Arabia, and we are exchanging that between our international secretariat or Amnesty USA in the Netherlands, and those can be intercepted and, uh, uh, and then afterwards being exchanged with other secret services, people really could be immediate in danger immediately in danger and that is something that worries me very much that that's it's it's not only the right on, on privacy for citizens but also the, the the safety of human rights defenders abroad that is at stake here and i think you know we just visited something like this in the european court of justice 
just rule on the UK snooper charter and say that it was illegal? And, you know, there's a really big concern. How do you see the European Court of Justice ruling if something like this comes out? Where do you see this going? Well, what I see, what, what, is, what is happening is that politicians more and more um, contest rulings of the U- European Court on, on Human Rights. And that is, say, well, the margin of appreciation is, is, is too broad. We, we have our national autonomy to respect. And that more and more politicians and political parties say, well, maybe we have gone too far in accepting uh, oversight and uh, rulings by the European Court on Human Rights and other international fora. And we should more emphasize our national autonomy. Autonomy, and that is where human rights really get at stake. Because if you don't accept international oversight anymore and international rulings, well, then that means that a majority government could just do whatever it wants in terms of refugee policy, in terms of anti-terrorism legislation, and that is really one of the cornerstones of international human rights and obligations. Is that exactly the autonomy isn't endless, the national autonomy, and that you accept that other countries and, and that there is a peer review, but there's also uh, legislation that is more important than your national legislation. Right. Well, and the big concern with this, if this happens, we are really going to put our companies at risk here because we're going to have more and more competing conflicting laws and our companies at risk because they're not going to be able to comply with the laws of all the different countries. Yeah, I think that's that's a real existing danger at this moment, uh, where, uh, and, and therefore it is very important that we step up our activities in campaigning and lobbying so that, well, this legislation, and maybe there will be some new ruling of the UN Court, that, that we find ways of, of addressing this in a proper way. We have been listening to Edward Nazarski, who is the Executive Director of Amnesty International in the Netherlands. You have been listening to A Global Perspective with Dr. Adriana Sanford on the Manufacturing Talk Radio Network at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.